Heavenly Father, we are grateful uh, just for this time. Thank you for the grace this morning. We get to come and, and worship you and praise you freely. God, we're grateful for that. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for what Christ did for us so that we can experience that right now. So your church comes to you this morning. We bow before you and we wait in great expectations for what you will do today. So I pray prepare our hearts, prepare our minds, our ears, that we may hear what you will say through Richard. Father, we pray for those that are here that need encouragement. Would you do what only you can do? Lift them up through your word. Encourage them, Father, to stand up and move forward because of Christ. We're sustained through that. And Father, for those that are out in our city and to the nation, we pray for our nation. We ask God, would your hand, would your hand be upon it more than ever? We need you more than ever. Our nation needs you more than ever. May the church rise up to be the church. And Father, across to the ends of the earth, you say that when everyone hears to the ends of the earth that you will return and we want you to come back. We desperately want you to come back. But until then, Father, may your church keep praying, may your church keep giving, and may your church keep sending people that they may hear that when the Son has set you free, we are free indeed. And we pray this in the powerful name of Jesus this morning. Amen. In your early years in school, I know that you have learned that the 4th of July is a time when America celebrates its um, freedom from British rule, having accomplished that through the, the Revolutionary War, the victory there. Throughout most of the 17th and 18th centuries, um, the colonies and Great Britain enjoyed a good relationship through something that was called salutary neglect. That is, there was sort of an agreement that the colonies would be left alone to govern themselves without British interference. But because of the enormous debt incurred by Great Britain during the um, French and Indian War, they thought they would make up that debt by taxing the colonies. And those uh, series of taxes begin in 1763. It was so oppressive to the colonists that they rebelled, and that rebellion eventually led to the Revolutionary War. You remember the names of the battles so well uh, in the Revolutionary War, the War for Independence, the Battle of Lexington and Concord, the Battle of Bunker Hill, the Battle of Saratoga, and up the road, significant battle, the Battle of Calpins. It's estimated that 6,800 Americans lost their lives in the Revolutionary War. Um, another 6,100 were injured. Uh, 20,000 20, were taken as prisoners of war. And among those in prison, 12,000 died in prison from uh, disease and, and malnutrition. So the Revolutionary War was costly, um, for sure. But those colonists said freedom was worth the price. So I want to ask today, because the 4th of July does make us talk about, mention the word freedom a lot, I want to ask a question. Is freedom a good thing? Well, uh, not as easy to answer that as you might think, depending on 
how you, what you believe freedom is. One uh, side of our culture today, a large portion says, popular definition of freedom, says that freedom is the right to do anything you want. If you ask people, what, what does it mean to be free? I can do anything I want. And let's think about that a minute. Last week, Lisa was driving down the Reedville Road and was passed by a group, a large group of motorcyclists who, not just driving at a high rate of speed, were, were doing wheelies up and down Reedville Road, all over the traffic. And when traffic was stopped, they passed all the cars on the sidewalks. So, should you in America be allowed to drive a motorcycle instead of a car? Should be free to do that? Yes. Should you be allowed to drive anywhere and anyhow you want? That answer would be no. So we just prove the point from a very simple illustration. Freedom cannot be doing anything, the right to do anything you want. That cannot be freedom. If a man is walking down a city street and sees a woman that he finds attractive, is he free to fulfill any desire that he has at that moment toward that woman just because he feels like doing it? Of course, your answer would be no. Freedom cannot be the right to do anything you want. Popular definition, but a wrong definition. Life would be one train wreck after another if each of us lived out our desires every day as we wanted. Some of those desires are just plain evil. God is so kind to all cultures that he provides four basic restraints to all cultures to keep freedom disintegrating into chaos. Those parameters are conscience, family, government, and the church. When any one of these restraints is taken away, freedom will diminish and chaos will increase. Now, before I say a word about each of these, let me say just by way of a spoiler alert, even when all four of these restraints are working at full capacity, they are not enough to provide ultimate freedom. But just because they don't have ultimate power does not mean they have no power. They do have some power because God has ordained them to have power. The first thing God has ordained is that of conscience. Um, conscience is basically a sense of, a God-given sense of right and wrong. That's what it means to be made in the image of God. Everybody is born with a basic sense of right and wrong. We know what pleases God, what displeases God. We think about that. Animals don't think about that. I have some friends right now on the coast that are um, renovating their house, not by their own choice, but termite infestation. As they're tearing out walls, they discovered, solved a mystery that began two months ago when they heard sort of a, a moving, a running inside the walls. They, they found a, a family of raccoons that were living in their homes and their house had begun, it's a horrid smell. And so they um, discovered that uh, Mama Raccoon every night was leaving and going out into their trash and bringing up food and food wrappers into the house, oyster shells, clam shells, um, and even some of the tools by the owner and uh, fishing lures, all stashed inside the raccoon home. <clears throat> I can assure you that not one of those raccoons feels guilty <laughs> about number one being a squatter, paying no rent, 
and stealing what is not yours. And the reason why that's true is animals have no moral connection to the Creator because they're not made in the image of God. They don't have a sense of right and wrong. But the Scripture says humans very much do from the beginning. Romans chapter 2, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature the things required by the law. And I just want to stop in mid-sentence to just in case some of the Gentiles would be a reference to those who are... um, have no exposure to God. So when someone who has no exposure to God, church, or the Bible, never heard of Christ, when they do the things that are actually written in the Bible, they can do that. Why? Verse 15 answers. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their consciences. Their thoughts sometimes accusing them and other times even defending them. The purpose of your conscience is to remind you that there is a God to whom we are accountable. Whether or not you have the scripture or not, there is a sense of the awareness of God. And the choices that you make as a free person are only going to be right if you make those choices with a sense that I will give an accountability to a creator for my choices. So the only way freedom is preserved In society, if that's not happening, chaos will be the result. Your conscience is a gift from God that warns you not to engage in wrong behavior just as nerves in your hand would would warn you not to touch a hot pan on, on the stove. The more you listen to your conscience, the stronger it gets as if you had gone to the gym and worked out a muscle. The more you resist your conscience, the weaker it becomes to the point that one day it will no longer protest at all, no matter what immorality or impurity you are engaged in. Some people seek to eliminate their conscience by feeding misinformation into it. Whatever their natural conscience is telling them is right and wrong, they Reject that and feed misinformation to them that will affirm wrong choices. It's almost like putting sugar in a gasoline tank of a car. You can do that so much that eventually the engine will not run. You can feed enough misinformation into your conscience. It will no longer function. The second restraint that God has given to civilization to keep freedom from turning into chaos is that of family. Eventually, sometime in the church, we'll be in the book of Ephesians chapter 6. We'll go ahead and go there right now for a second. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, verse 1, for this is right. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. So no matter how large a society becomes, it's always made up of individual building blocks called Families and the purpose of those families are for the training of the consciences of children through mothers and fathers in the family. Exactly what we see in those four verses. So God uses parents to train children to honor Him and to bless others. When that occurs, society experiences freedom, society experiences peace. But if the family does not exist, then the training will not exist. If 
The parents believe that freedom means doing anything you want. The children will then believe freedom means doing anything you want. When mayhem rules in the family, mayhem will rule on the streets. Our nation right now is producing millions of children who have never experienced the love and the discipline and the stability of family. The way to destroy a nation is by destroying its families. It is the desire of evil to destroy the family, to destroy children, and then to destroy the nation. The third restraint that God gives to civilization is you know, to keep freedom from becoming chaos is that of government. Romans 13.1 says, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on wrongdoers. So the primary role of the government is the safety of its people. We live in a broken world with broken people who do bad things. If your city is so bad that you're afraid to go out at night and walk around the block, your freedom is gone. If you live your life primarily thinking about locking your doors, it's because your freedom is on, on the decline. It is the role of government to protect your freedom. Several months ago, we had a bad ice buildup in our refrigerator freezer, and it was way back in the innards of the unit, and it involved the coil and uh, freon and freon leak, and I couldn't fix it. I knew I couldn't fix it. So I looked on uh, Google of who might could do such a thing, and I came across a man named Ivan, the refrigerator repairman. And it's interesting, when he came, turned out Ivan was his entire company. With his name and his accent, it was not hard to deduce that he was at least somewhere near Russia in his point of origin. I asked him that. He said, it's true. I said, when did you move to the States? He said, about 10 years ago. And I said, why did you move here? He said, so that I could have the freedom to own a business. How precious is that? He said, I can't do this in Russia. So the government would not allow me to, have, to run the business as I want, and the, the, the government will not offer me protection in the place, the city where I live. I would have to pay the mafia in order to keep my business open. I would make no money. And since he's lived here, he's established a business, and he and his wife that year had just bought their first house. Because he lived in a, a place where government was intact and provide safety and freedom for, for people. So God has desired government to protect freedom, and just as there is no perfect conscience and there is no perfect family, there is no perfect government. Uh, they will all make mistakes. But it still does not mean that they are not, the conscience and the family and the government are not ordained by God to help with protect freedom. I'm sure you, you've heard the news by now that there was a shooting just down the road from here, Thursday afternoon, uh, 
in the area of Cleveland Park. Um, I started getting text messages when I was here. It was just Ronnie and I were the only ones here. Ronnie and me, Ronnie and I. I don't know. And um, <laughs> right there, live, I got scared. Ronnie and I were here. I know that's right. And um, <clears throat> we got text messages and phone calls to tell people asking us, you know, did we know what was going on? And there was a, an active shooter down the street a few blocks away. And we didn't know that. Um, we heard a lot of sirens. Uh, there was abundant activity of law enforcement uh, vehicles back and forth, but we had no idea what was going on until, um, you know, really until we could process it with the news later that night. But it turned out that uh, around 2.30 in the afternoon down on Amelia Street, uh, um, two employees of the Waterworks crew were working on a sewer main. Uh, and uh, a man... Uh, living on Amelia Street, shot both of them while they were working. Uh, not life-threatening injuries, but they, they were shot. And then he barricaded inside, inside his house, and there were people in there, uh, in his house at the time. One was a, a charter repairman making a service call, and so he w used the people in his house as hostages. Uh, when um, the hostage negotiation team uh, made its way toward the house. Uh, he shot one of the deputies in the shoulder, also not life-threatening. But unfortunately, tragically, uh, the employee that worked with Charter Communications, who had been working there for nine years, was on a typical service call. He was 49 years old. His name was Patrick McIntyre, a father and a grandfather. Tragically, he, he died while on a, a simple service call. Uh, from a gunshot during, during this event. His daughter on the news later described him, said, my daddy was a friend to everyone and loved his family and friends so much, but above all, he loved Jesus, and he was the best. After a two-hour standoff, again with <clears throat> multiple shots fired, uh, eight at least from the news accounts, from what I've heard talking more than that. Um, the sheriff's department was able to take the shooter out, and he died at Regional Hospital a few minutes later. It was not surprising when you begin to read all of the news accounts from here to the national news that somebody would have said this. Somebody in the neighborhood was interviewed and said, today was chaos. Interesting. They didn't say today was freedom. Because when you begin to turn your conscience off, what results is chaos. Today was chaos. One of the residents that was interviewed was a guy named Michael Garrett, a man who had lived there for 10 years. When asked how life would now be affected in the neighborhood, he said, I know that my grandchildren will no longer go to Cleveland Park, at least for some time. Loss of freedom. When Sheriff Chuck Wright was interviewed about the shootings, he said, I want this community to know that we're out there trying to have peace. We are going to do whatever it takes to have peace. We don't like these outcomes, but we don't dictate them. What both of those men were saying, the grandfather, Michael Garrett, and Sheriff Chuck Wright were saying the same thing. God raises up the government to help with peace. Peace. 
And that helps with freedom. The final uh, parameter, the restraint that God gives to keep freedom from turning into chaos is that of the church. I love how the Apostle Paul describes the church in 1 Timothy chapter 3. If I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household. Then he defines it, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. So here, the church is connected with truth, and particularly it's connected with the church in two ways. The church is called the foundation of truth and the pillar of truth. Now, what does the foundation do? Well, the foundation is something that's normally not seen, but it's what you stand on. It's what you build things on. Foundations are vital. You don't see them. It keeps things from shifting and moving. Foundations are supposed to be immovable. The truth about God is unchanging, immovable. We build our lives on that. But he doesn't just describe the church as having a foundation of truth. He said the church is the pillar of truth. What's a pillar? It's a column. It goes up. Columns are built on foundations. Columns are what you see. You see columns all over this room. You see columns in lots of public areas. They are built on a foundation that you don't see. And what you do see are the columns that go high, high, high. And here Paul says, not only is the church built on the foundation of truth, we are to lift high the truth so the world can see it. The only thing that ever leads to real hope in the world is real truth. And if there's ever a place that real truth should be accurately proclaimed about God, it's the church. It is our purpose to proclaim truth. It's the only thing that frees people. It's the only proper foundation to build your life on. One of Paul's favorite names for the church is the body of Christ. So we are his hands through which he touches, his feet through which he walks. We are his mouth through which he speaks. When the church obeys its call, it is the voice of God to everyone on earth. The church speaks to individuals. The church speaks to families. And the church even speaks to governments. There's not one piece of sand on earth, not one bee, not one bird, not one river, not a leaf, not a tree, not a mountain, not a desert, not an ocean, not a cloud, not a man, not a woman over which God does not have jurisdiction. And God has a plan for everything that he's created, and he has chosen to articulate that plan through the church. Jesus says to his disciples, what I whisper in your ear, shout from the housetops for all to hear. That's the calling of the church. The message that comes from the church is pretty easy. Thus says the Lord. That's all we're to do each Sunday whether we sing it or preach it. This is the word of God. And again, that word is to be spoken to individuals. That word is to be spoken to families. And that word is to be spoken to governments. A lot of people don't like that relationship between that the church should speak to the government. But I would submit to you, do you ever want a government without a conscience. All that power and no restraint. Of course you want 
the truth of God through the church of God to be spoken to the government. You never want the church to stop speaking to the government. You never want the government to be without a conscience. The church is the conscience of everyone's conscience. I told you a few weeks ago on Father's Day, men in this current generation have forfeited the call to lead uh, through courageously speaking truth from boardrooms uh, to classrooms, from industry to politics. Men, and I say that because I just want to indict myself and those with me, are more fearful than faithful. They struggle to speak that which is plain and true. Before they make a decision, they look out the window and they see the tops of trees to see which way the winds of culture are blowing, and then they only say those things that will be affirmed by culture. That, that's not speaking truth. And that mentality has crept into the church. Pastors are totally confused about what they should be saying nowadays. Not an innocent confusion, but it comes out as confusion. They're always asking the question, what will people say if I say this? And yet the only charge I have and people like me that are true to the Word of God, I'm simply to say this is what God says about all things. It's my only calling, regardless of who listens and who rejects. And, and many will reject. I, I, in 34 years, you know, that's part of it. You get numbers and numbers of letters. You know, even, I mean, if just recently, just within two weeks, harsh letters. They do not hurt my feelings. I did not sign up for this. I didn't even come today that you might like me. I, I came to tell you about Christ and hope that you will love him. I don't know how much time I have left on earth. I don't know how much time I have left to preach. It's really not a profound statement, nor do you know any of those answers. I do know this, though. Whatever time I have left, I don't want to spend that time apologizing for God or providing misinformation so people will fill the church. What I want to do is I want to spend the rest of my life telling the truth about God because I know the truth is the only thing that sets people free. Jesus said in John 8, 31, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples, then you'll know the truth. And my truth will set you free. That's why God sent Jesus into the world, to tell the truth so that we would love the truth. Know it and love it and be free by it. It is impossible to have a relationship with God apart from the truth. You cannot have a relationship with God apart from Jesus Christ who came to articulate the truth. It's impossible. It's where truth is found. No surprise to you, the world rejects this because it believes that it can be free apart from truth. The world says it can be free by choosing its own truth. Jesus said, no, I've come to tell you the truth. So the world says, I can be free apart from the rule of God. I can be free apart from a relationship with Christ. Impossible, according to Jesus. 
He's the one that tells the truth. You could see this, by the way, the crowds responded to Jesus in eight, John 8, 33. They answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? So these people told Jesus, we do not need you to set us free because we've always been free. We don't need your freedom, God. Don't need your freedom, Christ. We are free and have never been anything but free, which I find this to be an amazing statement. Have they not forgotten that little 400-year period in history where they were slaves to Egypt? And did it not dawn on them maybe a more current predicament like the one they were in there Their land, Israel, was occupied by the Roman army. They were not free. So it's a ridiculous statement, even on geography, geographical terms, geopolitical terms alone. But that's really not the main issue. For they had lost, these people had lost their freedom to a much greater foe than Egypt or Rome. Uh, They lost their freedom when sin became their master. That's when they lost their freedom. John 8, 34, Jesus replied, Very truly, I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin, which my guess would pretty much affect everyone in this room. (laughs) That's your problem, and that's why Jesus has come. Every one of us in here is attracted to sin, drawn to it. We've done it which makes us at one time or another, sin is our master. And Jesus has come to say, I want to free you from sin being your master. I was reading a report this week by the Fraser Institute. They publish every year something called the Human Freedom Index. They look at the top countries in the world. In 2020, I think they looked at 167 countries. And they um, look at which is the most free country in the world, which is the least free country in the world. And uh, they base it on what personal freedoms you would have in that country, personal freedoms being the right to speak as you want, uh, the right to assemble, uh, the right to choose your religion, and um, the right to uh, earn a living uh, as you want without government uh, interference. Those would be personal freedoms. So in 2020, which I think was probably about the year 2019, but the 2020 report said um, the freest country in the world uh, in 2020 was New Zealand, and the least free country in the world was Syria. Which makes me doubly grateful that a team is heading out today to join other teams that are already in the Middle East because the refugees we're ministering to are fleeing from this least free country in the world, Syria. So very happy about your involvement in our work in the Middle East to minister to those in Syria without freedom. But Jesus says, interesting, whether you live in New Zealand or Syria, your freedom index is basically the same. (laughs) If you're not completely controlled by God, you've lost your freedom. And sin has become your master. And Jesus says, I've come to free you from that master. He said this, <clears throat> read it again, verse 34. Very truly I say to you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to the family forever. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. 
If you were a servant in a family in the first century BC in which Christ lived, you had no job security. You had no home security. If the owner of the home was done with you, at a moment's notice, you could be cast out and you, as a servant, would be homeless. It's not a very freeing feeling at all. It's a scary feeling. Lose your freedom in a minute. Then Jesus said, but if you were a son living in that same house, you were a son of the owner of the house, you would live there forever and there would be never a time when you would lose your freedom. You would be welcomed at the table forever. This is what Jesus has come to do. To take away your bondage to fear, fear of guilt, fear of judgment, the fear of the bondage of, of fear of death, and replace it with Jesus making you a son and a daughter of God. So that no matter how much you struggle, how much you fall, there will never be a time in which God says to you, you are not welcome to come back to the table. That's the kind of freedom Jesus Christ has come to bring. He came to tell us, in my Father's house are many rooms, and I go there to prepare a place for you. You would think that would be the greatest news in the world. I mean, you cannot get tired of that, hearing that even at a funeral. You know it's coming. <laughs> but you want to hear it again. Tell me one more time. In my Father's house are many rooms. I go to to prepare a place for you. Surely they would have loved hearing that, but they did not love hearing that. And Jesus knew they resented him saying that. He said, you are looking for a way to kill me because you have no room in your heart for truth. Jesus offered them the greatest freedom possible, freedom from the fear of the rejection of God freedom from the dominion of sin, and they didn't want it because they did not want to say, we need Jesus. And we want to align ourselves with truth. We want to redefine truth instead of letting Jesus define it. And they rejected him for it. He's not the only one with a great message that was rejected because of him saying, you need me. George Whitfield uh, was born in Gloucester, England in December 16, 1714. He attended Oxford College where he befriended John and Charles Wesley. They, along with about 15 total guys, formed something that was called the Holy Club. They didn't choose that as their name. They just pursued God so passionately that as a term of derision, all the other students at Oxford mocked them and said, oh, y'all are members of the Holy Club. Well, the group... The Holy Club recognized that George Whitfield had a great gift as an orator. He should be preaching to many. Whitfield rarely preached without weeping. In 33 years, he would preach 33,000 sermons, many times twice a day, many times four times on Sunday. When John and Charles Wesley saw the dire condition, the spiritual uh, vacancy, among the colonists when America was in its founding days, mid-1700s, godless. They invited Whitfield to come preach here. 
On his second visit, Whitfield preached in the 13 colonies. He, he traveled to 75 cities preaching. But interestingly, the religious establishment would not let him preach in church. They accused him of something. I love this. The historical term is they accused him as preaching with too much enthusiasm. He was called, term of derision, an enthusiast. So they forced him outside the door, which was one of the great providences of God. It put him out in the marketplace, out in the fields, out in the city square, where he was then heard preaching in the city of Philadelphia by Benjamin Franklin. Benjamin Franklin, who at no time in his life ever declared complete allegiance to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, did see something in the, Whitfield of, in the preaching of Whitfield that when he preached, joy was high, morals were better, people were united. So he did all that he could to bring about unity among the divided colonists. And so he began publishing Whitfield's sermons on the front page of the Philadelphia Gazette every week. This providential meeting between Whitfield and Franklin elevated Whitfield's status so that everybody wanted to come here and preach now, so that now when he preached outside, crowds as large as 30,000 people would come here and preach. Revival, the first great awakening, was spreading throughout the colonies, which prepared them for times to come, all because of the gospel. Whitfield believed that the scripture taught that the gospel was for everyone. He preached to whites and blacks equally, as many as would come to hear him preach in his outdoor gatherings. He preached that everybody, like Jesus Christ said, must be born again. That conscience is not enough to get you in heaven. Family training is not enough to get you in heaven. Allegiance to government is not enough to get you in heaven. Even attending church is not enough to get you into heaven. A relationship with Jesus Christ where supernatural power causes you to be born again is what will prepare you for heaven. And that's what he preached. That's why the religious people didn't like him in that day. It was insulting to their religious pride. The same as we see in John chapter 8. You're looking for a way to kill me because I'm telling you, you need me to get to heaven. But as the scripture teaches, God knew that they would kill him. They knew he'd crucify his son. In fact, that is the very purpose for which God sent Jesus to that crowd that was planning to kill him so that through the death of Christ, all the sins that have been committed by people in this room would be forgiven through Christ's suffering. As Paul said in Galatians 4, when this set time had fully come, God sent his son to be born of a woman to redeem those under the law who had failed the law, that's us, so that we might receive adoption, might be made children, sons and daughters of God. You really can't find a more beautiful word in the scripture than the word redeem. It means the price that it takes to purchase someone's freedom. It means to um, protect someone, to rescue them from harm. 
or to deliver them to safety. Through his death on the cross, Jesus rescued us from the penalty of God's judgment and the power of sin's dominion. We've been redeemed from all of the dangers of sin. Paul alludes to that in Galatians 4, the change in our status because you are his sons now. We're not afraid anymore. We're sons. God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. Completely new transformation of our relationship with God. I love how this is a paraphrase of Jonathan Edwards, who was a contemporary of George Whitfield. This, this, is, a, this is how um, Jen, Jonathan Edwards talks about this, what happens from the supernatural birth. Before we come to Christ, we're like a man who lived in a smelly dungeon. He didn't want to leave because he didn't know there was any better place in the world. But when Christ comes, we realize there's something better than sin. It's, to, it's being with God, loving him, obeying him. We realize that's better. That's more joyful. That's what true freedom is, the ability to obey God. When Jesus takes away your sin, you want to leave the dungeon. When the door opens, you want to walk out and live life with God. Jesus didn't come just to free us from the stain of sin. He came to free us from the love of sin. Christ makes us new that we might be free to do what we ought to do. Here's the definition of freedom. Unlike how we started, this is the correct one. Freedom is not the right to do anything you want. Freedom is the passion to do everything you should this is why Jesus came into the world. This is why Jesus shed his blood. This is why Jesus rose from the dead. And this is why Jesus has filled your heart with his Holy Spirit to make you free indeed. Let's pray. Father, I stand on the stage as I do every week, marveling that so many things work right in my brain, uh, my body. But Lord, even beyond that, that, my words can actually be heard by the free choice of people who've left their house this morning, were drawn by you, persuaded by you to come here. Everyone in this city was free to either come here and listen or stay home and not listen. But we're grateful that you have provided at this time in history a place where I am allowed to preach and the band is allowed to sing such a great message of hope, of eternal freedom in Christ. Father, we're grateful for every day that your hand of providence, whether you caused Whitfield and Franklin to meet or you caused someone to invite a friend here, that your providence would be at work in all the affairs of, 
of a nation, of families, of people. It calls us to be able to freely hear a message of eternal freedom. Jesus, there's nothing we would rather do right now than turn our eyes on your magnificent life, to turn our eyes on all of the sin that you said no to, so you could say yes to a cross, yes to a suffering, yes to a death that would free us from all of the sins that we committed when we misused our freedom. We turn our eyes on you, Jesus, and see you coming out of the tomb. We see your lovely, forgiving eyes, nail-crossed hand, extending an offer to us to be welcomed as sons and daughters into the house of the Lord, into your mansion where there are many rooms, to freely live forever, never to be cast out. So right now, we extend our hand to you. We take your hand. We want to be free. Free from guilt, free from addiction, free from anger, free from lust, free from greed, free from worry, free from judgment. Thank you, Jesus, that you have done everything that is necessary for us to be eternally free. So now, we say thank you. And we simply turn our eyes on your salvation. We turn our eyes on Jesus. In his name I pray, amen.